Your job is to tell the truth. That's your job as a journalist. And if you can't do that, you're in the wrong job. That it wasn't my job, that it isn't our job to be popular. It was interesting to me how they fit together as a book. I mean, I'm not nearly smart enough to have done that on purpose. It's like saying, how, does, how do you become great at football? Well, you've got to have a gift to start with. There's no question about that. And then, you, and then there's lots of other ingredients that have to come together. And I would imagine it's the same, you know, with sports writing. Hello and welcome to a very special edition of Behind the Lines here on The 42 with me, Gavin Cooney. We're running a Genius Week on The 42 this week, which is a series of features that celebrate sporting geniuses. And here is our very special contribution to that series. If you're not aware of Behind the Lines, uh, this is a weekly podcast about sports writing that is exclusive to members of The 42. Each episode of the show features a lengthy interview with a sports writer in which we talk to them about their career, along with their favourite pieces of sports writing. If you want to sign up now and gain access to a 30-episode back catalogue that features the likes of Maliki Clerkin and Jonathan Liu and Joanna Reardon and Rory Smith and Graham Hunter and Darrell Kanaja and Sam Smith and many, many more, head on over to members.the42.ie. A link to that website is handily included in the episode description of this podcast. I have also been keeping a leaderboard of the most cited writers across our 29 episodes to date, and well out in front with six selections is Hugh McIlvanny, arguably the greatest sports writer of them all. So we are going to celebrate McIlvanny's genius across this podcast. Hugh McIlvanny spent 30 years writing for The Observer and a further 23 years at The Sunday Times. He was UK Sports Journalist of the Year seven times. He was made OBE in 1996. He was given a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Scottish Press Awards in 2004 and was inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame in 2009. He sadly died on the 24th of January 2019 at the age of 84. Gary Lineker delivered a eulogy at a memorial service in McIlvanny's honour that took place on Fleet Street in March 2019 and Gary has kindly agreed to contribute to this podcast. So let's listen to Gary's contribution and I began by asking him of his first memories of McIlvanny as a reader and whether they stretch back to the days Lineker was breaking through the ranks at Leicester City. Um, probably not when I started off at Leicester because um, it, it was I was very young um, back then and probably wouldn't have read that kind of heavyweight newspaper that um, Hugh worked for. Um, probably reading the local Leicester Mercury was about as far as it went. Um, but, you know, certainly latterly, um, you know, when I was in the England squad, stuff like that, and then get to know one or two of the journalists you meet. Um, meet Met Hugh, obviously enjoying those circumstances at times when he'd be writing following a, a World Cup, um, certainly in 86, etc. So... And by that stage, I was I was reading his stuff. My agent was um, a friend of his, um, John Holmes, and um, he would have recommended. I think you know. I remember in the probably just before the World Cups and stuff that he started saying you need to you know start you know reading real good sports journalism, etc. So, and he was um, uh, very much the main man at that time, and um, continued to be so for a considerable period. Why was it important to be reading good sports journalism as a player? Um, because by that stage, mid-twenties, I'd already decided the career path that I was uh, wanting to take um, into um, media journalism myself. And um, <clears throat> so it was important to get good influences and, um, and diversify my, my reading at that point. Um, so I did a lot of reading anyway, um, both you know, in terms of books and certainly... Um, general reading but also um, 
sports reporting. I used to you know, I used to write match reports myself when I was a kid in school because I always thought if I didn't make it at football um, or cricket at that point um, that I'd probably end up being um, or try to be a sports journalist, which I'm sure is is the story for many of um, many of the sports writers that are around. That's like kind of. It's the second best thing. I, I suppose, ironically, in a way, I've ended up doing that at the end of my, you know, once I couldn't play anymore. So it kind of happened anyway. Uh, were your reports, were these on games you were playing in or ones on TV? No, they, they would have been um, Leicester City matches that I went to watch. I used to take notes in the stand. Um, I was, I don't know, by, I went from the age of seven, but obviously I wasn't writing then. This is probably in my teenage years. I was still at school. Um, and it just became quite a, a little bit I used to make notes during the matches and then get over and write a match report they're probably falling but um, nevertheless it was it was the start of something I suppose they were, were they ever published anywhere? Good um, what, not, that, not at that stage not as a team <laughs> no. I've, I've no idea where they are now they wouldn't exist um, I probably just threw them away but um, no not at that stage <laughs> At risk of asking a blindingly obvious question when you're reading Q like you say when uh, you realised it's important to start reading good sports journalism. What yeah. set his work apart? Uh, the fact that um, I had to get a dictionary for some of his words. <laughs> um, he was an unbelievably good wordsmith and, and the way he could put those together. I mean, I've spoken to Hugh about his writing and um, a number of times he told me how it took him a long time to write stuff. It was an agonising process and he was almost such a perfectionist. Um, that he, you know, he kind of hated actually the the, the writing of it. Um, um, but he was so meticulous, and um, and the language that he used, it kind of flowed off the page. And I think that's the thing that struck me most about um, uh, Hughes' writing. That um, you know, particularly some like a, a a big game or a big boxing fight or something like that. He, he kind of made you feel like you were part of it. And um, I think that's where the genius lies. Mm. You would have been interviewed by God knows how many journalists over your career. Uh, you were obviously interviewed by Hugh before. Yeah. What set him apart or what, um, yeah, what set him apart? Um, I think possibly I just think the way you could picture his words and also uh, the beauty of his words, I think um, he's all, almost poetic, I, I would describe him as writing as. And I think that's probably um, lifted him above um, most sports journalists. Well, pretty much all of them, to be perfectly honest. Um, and he was just, it was just a, a beautiful writer. It was like a, it, you didn't read his match reports to see what had happened. You read his, his, his match reports um, to see beyond what had happened and, and the beauty of what had happened and, and the magnificence of, of what happened. You know, you know, some of his pieces, you know, obviously the Ali Foreman fight, stuff like that. Um, um, beautiful stuff. Mm. Yeah, which, you've, which of his pieces stand out for you then, otherwise, other than oh, Ali blind. Foreman? Um, there was, what's the, I've forgotten the Welsh boxer's name that, that passed. Oh, jo Johnny Owen, isn't it? Johnny Owen. I mean, that, I think that's one of the you know, beautifully written pieces and um, very emotive. Um, obviously, I, I remember some of his stuff that he wrote, and he wrote a few kind words about myself on occasion, so I always remember that stuff. Um, and around World Cups, so you would, you know, he was kind of a, you get Sunday, it was a must read um, to see, you know, he, he said it as it was as well. He wasn't, you know, he was, <laughs> he certainly wasn't a, sh a kind of writer that would sugarcoat things, but he recognised greatness when he saw it. 
and nobody articulated it better. Yeah. Did you get to know him then after you retired? Um, yeah, I sort of got to know him obviously during my career as well because he was a friend of my agents and I, I, towards the latter stages of my career when I'd established myself, um, I got to meet him um, on a few occasions, had a, a dinner or two with him, um, always, you know, followed by a, a whiskey or a brandy and a, and, and a cigar for, for him, not me. Um, and, um, and he was great company and, and he could argue. He, he, you know, <laughs> he didn't necessarily just agree with everything you said, that was for sure. He had a view on things and he could, um, um, he could um, hold, his, uh, hold his own in any argument, that's for sure. And um, certainly um, when it comes to the English language, you wouldn't want to take him on. What did you fall out over? Oh, we didn't fall out over. We just, you know, there were discussions about, I think, you know, we just discussed the greats of the game. And that's always kind of a, a difficult subject and different people from different eras. You know, he would argue Pele's case against, um, I don't remember which way around it was, but it's going back a long time. This about Pele's case against Maradona, for example, or uh, Maradona against Messi, um, that kind of thing. We, we might have a difference of opinion. Um, and whereas normally with people, I can, I, feel like I win the argument because the fact that I, I you know I played with a, it, I played at the top level but with with him not necessarily so and he's certainly batty with words like that's interesting like so you obviously played at the top level so you could you obviously understand and comprehend greatness how did he manage to get that down to a T because I think it's a lot harder than people realize it's probably when you say it's that lot harder. It's probably down to working hard, caring, um, ambition, drive. Probably the same as in any in, in any walk of life. To to get to the top, you have to give more than everybody else. Um, you know, it's with. It's like saying how does how do you become great at football? Well, you've got to have a gift to start with. There's no question about that. And then you and then there's lots of other ingredients that have to come together. And I would imagine it's the same, you know, with sports writing or whatever else it is. Because if you you know if you've not got the drive and the hunger to be the best, then you just won't be the best. And I think he he must have had that. Um, whether he'd admit it or not, I don't, I don't know. But and we'll sadly never find out. But um, I. I don't think you can get to the top of your field if, if you don't really care about what you do and care about being better than anyone else. Um, that mm -hmm. certainly applies to football, which is something obviously it's easier for me to describe. Um, but I don't think there's any question about that. It's like, you know, I, I had that incredible drive um, with, with football and then I've, I've also had it in my afterlife in, in, in TV sports presenting. So I just, you know, you just, Whatever it takes, however much work it takes, that's it's a necessity that has to be has to be done if you want to be amongst the best. Mm. Uh, you gave an elegy at his funeral, I understand. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, how did that come about? Um, well, I was I was asked to do it um, by Hugh's wife, by a, um, whoever else was someone else was organising, and John Holmes. Um, they wanted me to to read one of his. Um, or one of his pieces, and I, it was, I was actually, what I, I wanted to read it, and I, I practiced it a lot, because I wanted it to be um, fluent and passionate, because there was a lot of passion in his writing, and, um, and I, my biggest concern was I couldn't do it in his voice, because he had this most incredible, didn't he, like, that, that gravelly voice, that Scottish gravelly voice that was um, um, 
well, I suppose inimitable, really. So, um, but it, 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 went, it went well enough. People, people enjoyed it. Um, it. It was a lot better than having to write something myself. <laughs> That's what I was going to ask. So you, you didn't write it yourself. Can I ask what you what you read? It was a huge piece. It was uh, it's the boxing piece that I mentioned earlier, and it was ah, right. uh, it was. Uh, <laughs> It's a special piece of writing, and um, I just wanted to do it justice. And I, funnily enough, I don't get nervous. I don't, but the the world of journalism was there, as you might of sports journalism was there, and other journalists as well, because he was so revered and so respected. Um, and I stood, and I, I remember standing at the the lectern, ready to read, and and very rarely for me I did feel a little bit nervous um, I never really felt nervous when I played football I don't feel nervous until when I do television or other things but I just felt nervous because I, I felt like I had to do him justice and that's not an easy thing to do with the with the way he writes but um, it seemed to go down well which was it's, it's encouraging yeah what's your abiding memory of Hugh McElvaney I think spending time in his company um, you know, yes, of course, reading his, 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 his wonderful pieces and the way he puts them together, but actually spending a bit of time with him, um, having the odd dinner here and there, because he was, he was, he was brilliant company. Um, as you'd expect, he's seen, you know, talking to him about the alley fights and stuff like that that he'd been to. Imagine that. You know, I'd never been to, I mean, I, I love boxing. Um, it's one of my, you know, one of the great sports, I think. But my, I didn't, the fights that I saw were, were more recent, but you know, him describing about, you know, the thriller in Manila and all those kind of things was just, it was just magical. You could just listen to him for hours. Um, um, telling you his stories about, you know, world cups that he'd been to great players that he's interviewed, great boxers that he's, you know, I think boxing and football were, and, and golf as well, as well. I used to see him at the open when I covered the golf and we'd always have a chat. Um, and I think those, uh, those were the three sports that I think he really, really excelled at more than anything yeah. else before. Yeah, uh, I have a nice, handy question to finish. Uh, what's his legacy for, I guess, sport as much as for writing? Um, I think a bit of both, really, won't it? It'll be, it, it, he'll leave... The thing is, his words will... They're immortal, really. His words will always be with us. You know, you can, you'll always be able to read his stuff. You might not be able to speak to him anymore, but, um, you know, if I were a young journalist wanting to be a sports writer, I know who I'd be reading still to this day, and that would be Hugh McLevin. Thanks to Gary. We're very grateful for his time and his thoughts. Uh, we're now going to pluck at a few themes that Gary raised there and zone in on them uh, with the help of our former guests on this podcast. Uh, Gary mentioned a piece that McIlvany wrote about Welsh boxer Johnny Owen, and it just so happens that one of our previous guests, Donald McRae, who himself is one of the greatest boxing writers of his generation, picked out exactly that piece as one of his, exa- his favourite examples of sports writing. So let's listen to Don explain exactly why he picked it. Johnny Owen was a um, a Welsh fighter. Um, I forget the exact. I think this, this fight was sort of. I think in the early eighties. I don't know if you've got it to hand. Yeah. I think it was maybe about eighty two or something like that. Uh, September nineteen eighty. Nineteen eighty, and I never met Johnny Owen. Obviously, I wasn't even in the UK then. I was still back in Johannesburg, but I met Hugh McIlvenny, the one of the perhaps the most famous sports writer that's ever. Um, come out of the UK and a wonderful boxing writer. So a lot of this is informed by Hugh telling me um, what Johnny Owen was like and 
according to Hugh and most people who knew Johnny, uh, they would say he was such a shy, quiet, painfully um, awkward young man. He was skinny. He was a bantamweight. Um, but when he put boxing gloves on, he became something else. He became this fluid, um, courageous young person who had this vision of what he wanted to fight for a world title. Um, and he ended up fighting in, in Los Angeles, and it was a bitter battle. And unfortunately, it ended up with uh, Johnny Owen, I think, falling into a coma and losing his life. And unfortunately, I haven't looked at the, the piece I suggested we talk about today, Hughes' piece, for a long time. But there's one line in it, and I, I won't be able to quote it exactly, but it's something along the lines is that the, the tragedy of Johnny Owen um, is that he was only articulate with his fists, mm. something along those lines, that basically when it came to language, he was painfully inarticulate. But as soon as he put the gloves on, he had this fluidity and this ability to express himself in a, in a you know quite a wonderful way. But the sadness was that, that ultimately cost his life as a, as a young man. And that piece by Hugh, um, as I said, I haven't looked at it closely for, for many, many years, but it is just, I think, perhaps the best piece of, uh, I don't even want to use the word journalism. It's something else. But the best piece about about a live fight that sort of captures the absolute pathos and tragedy of boxing, but does it in a way that still makes you understand why Johnny Owen became a fighter and why his family could accept the fact that he lost his life as a fighter and why Hugh, deeply compassionate Glaswegian, a tough man, wonderfully gifted, but Hugh, you know, I was in bars with him in, in Las Vegas often and after he'd, you know, had his 10th beer and scotch and Guinness all mixed together, if he didn't, someone was giving him a bit of a look, he would sort it out in the classic Glaswegian style. Mm. But he, he had such deep compassion, Hugh, and love fighters too. And I think he was devastated by the death of Johnny Owen. But in a way, he just managed to explain boxing, not shy away from the absolute devastation that boxing causes. But he articulated why young men still, now these days, two young women want to be fighters. Um, mm. And I just think it's a wonderful piece of work. Yeah, you mentioned, I've swatted up, I've got the, the quote that you're talking about here in front of me. Uh, yeah. our, our reactions are bound to be complicated by the knowledge that it was boxing that gave Johnny Owen his one positive means of self-expression. Outside the ring, he was an, an inaudible and almost invisible personality. Inside, he became astonishingly positive and self-assured. He seemed to be more at home there than anywhere else. It is his tragedy that he found himself articulate in such a dangerous language. Isn't that beautiful? Among those in the crowd at the listening to the eulogy that Lineker delivered uh, was Alan English, now editor of the Sunday Independent, and perhaps more notably, a very early guest on this podcast series. Uh, across that episode, he reminisced upon his time as sports editor at the Sunday Times, where he became a colleague and ultimately a friend of Hugh McIlvanny's. He also quoted his favourite McIlvanny piece, which was McIlvanny's 1994 tribute to the late Matt Busby. In the language of the sports pages, greatness is plentiful. The reality of sport, like that of every other area of life, shows that it is desperately rare. Greatness does not gad about, reaching for people in handfuls. It settles deliberately on a blessed few, and Matt Busby was one of them. 
If Busby had stood dressed for the pit and somebody alongside him in the room had worn ermine, there would have been no difficulty about deciding who was special. Granting him a knighthood did not elevate him. It raised, however briefly, the whole dubious phenomenon of the honour system. Busby emanated presence, substance, the quality of strength without arrogance. No man in my experience ever exemplified better the ability to treat you as an equal while leaving you with the sure knowledge that you were less than he was. Such men do not have to be appointed leaders. Some democracy of the instincts and the blood elects them to be in charge. Um, you know, so to have been to have been sort of about ten feet away when when this piece was being, you know, you know, basically put onto the page um, is, is a great is a great memory. I, that, that is just outstanding sports yeah. writing. Yeah. Was it your job to edit that? No, no, okay. I, it was nobody's job to edit Hugh McIlvany. Yeah. And you didn't edit you, um, you know, you, you, yeah. What you did with you was you, 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 you eased his the fears that he had that the piece might not be any good. You know, I mean, he he had. It was you know, people might find it extraordinary, but he he had the same insecurity that any of us would have about having finished a piece and sending sending it to the office. Christ, you know, is this any good or not? Hugh had that. Um, to, you know, to 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 his to to, to the very end, really, right. um, and so I think as a sports editor, you know, if there was one thing I, I I could bring to the table, it was trying to empathize with the with the writer, trying to understand that 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 what they were just sending you was you know, you know, in the case of the best sports writers, something that they had sweated over, something that they had worried about, something that they were probably insecure about, something that they were hoping that you would say, look, you, you have absolutely nailed this. And they know themselves when they have really, really hit the target and they know when they've sort of written something that, you know, is, 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 is not of their best work, you know. And, but when I think when they really do deliver something of, of, of true excellence, um, you know, you're failing them if you don't acknowledge that and, and, and generously, um, you know, recognize it. Uh, because everybody needs some, some, some validation uh, from Hugh McIlvany um, down to down to the to the, to the junior reporter just started mm. last week. Yeah, God, it's it's kind of weirdly great to hear that even Hugh McIlvany had some yeah. insecurity no, about what he was writing. Ab absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And in fact, um, about uh, about eighteen months after he joined the Sunday Times, he was on the point of resigning because there was a change of sports editor, um, and the new sports editor. Um, wasn't giving him that. You know, he was a writer himself. Um, and it just wasn't in him um, as a sports editor, I think, to be sort of generous and to understand and, and to, to sort of acknowledge um, the efforts that had gone into the pieces. So Hugh, you know, would have told me in, in private moments that he he felt like he was just dropping his copy down a, down a black hole. Um, you know, it was like, you know, he sent it over, nothing, nothing back from the office not even a you know just a, a mere acknowledgement that we got it. Thanks. We'll let you know if there's any any queries, which is a sort of a deeply unsatisfying experience, especially for 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 Sunday newspaper journalists, because it's not like you're sort of dashing off yeah. a piece from a you know a press conference attended by ten other r reporters, and you you, you got to file something on on deadline. And you know if you have spent a week um, you know producing something, or at least a couple of days producing something. Um, you know, I think it's important that, uh, that you get some, some constructive feedback and, and you get respect, you get respect from, from, from good sports writers for that. You know, they, you know, if they, if they understand that, that, that you 
have read their work closely um, um, and if you've got some comments to make about the structure of it, if you sort of feel that, you know, it opens in the wrong place or it finishes in the wrong place or this section doesn't work or that quote doesn't quite, you know, ring true, um, they will listen to that. And, you know, so that's, I think that's, that's, that's where, you, where you build a good relationship. Gary also mentioned in the interview at McIlvany's ability to capture the importance of a big sporting moment and Miguel Delaney touched on precisely that skill when speaking about McIlvany in episode 23 of this podcast. Uh, it was when he was working for The Observer and it takes in just both the build-up and the game of the 1970 final and I think it's just such a perfect work. I mean, when you listen, when you, when you listen to McIlvany, that's kind of... Uh, uh, an experience in itself and because it's, it's such a rich voice and all that he re- really is charismatic but that actually comes across and is right when you start reading his stuff you can't help but imagine his voice which has such a gravitas to it but but this piece i just feel in terms of the atmosphere around the around a big football match i've never read anything that captures it so well and it's still it it, it has that line it's, I've, I've often referenced it in pieces i've done um which he, 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 it's it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, let me. I had it in front of me a second ago. I should really know it. I, I do kind of know it off by heart, but I'm afraid of getting one of one of the word one of the words wrong. Uh, so let me just <laughs> get the exact wording. But I've I've, I've ref- any time I've written a big piece on the World Cup final, or I've used it for the World Cup finals I've been to in 2010, 2014, 2018. I've referenced it and, and obviously name checked Michael Vanny because uh, it's it's such a great line. Uh, Earlier days offer off sudden death. But this is the only one that offers immortality, and I, I think that was McIlvany's great ability as well. It was that turn of phrase, just just to capture the moment. But, but, but if you if you if you read that piece as well, there, there's a there's a great little bit in it where he talks about him and the journalists on the bus. And let's not forget what, what this is. This wasn't just a World Cup final they were going to. It was a World Cup final featuring perhaps the most evocative team of all. So maybe the most fondly remembered team, probably the team that's had the greatest cultural imprint in football history, which is Brazil 1970. Uh, so we see, so he's talking about all this in the build-up. And, you know, you know, um, he was talking about the excitement, they all, the giddy excitement they all felt going to the game. And as long as he has, well, you know, maybe they say we were like kids, but then he, but he, but then he just kind of finishes it. But they could say what they, what, what they like, we were going to the World Cup final. Uh, and it's, it's an absolutely brilliant piece. And I, and I think it's a bit of, it's a, it's, a real example, a real kind of artifact of old school football journalism that stands the test of time and should still be influencing uh, journal journalism today. Uh, yeah. I, 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 I just, it just it's one of those that, as much as anything, it just captures the spirit of the occasion. Miguel and Gary have both mentioned McIlvany's voice, so I think it's about time we heard it. Uh, in 1996, McIlvany wrote and presented a series on the BBC called The Football Men, which chronicled the lives of a trio of legendary Scottish football managers, Matt Busby, Jock Steen and Bill Shankly. Uh, so just to get a little example of that elemental voice, here's how McIlvany introduced the series. In the west of Scotland, where I was raised... Nobody bothers to argue about whether football is a genuine popular art form, the theatre of the people. It's enough that the game has provided a means of expression for men as remarkable as Matt Busby, Bill Shankly and Jock Steen. They were totally distinct individuals, but they left a collective resonance. Not least because all were born into mining families within a few miles of each other in what used to be the west of Scotland coalfield. 
Matt Busby built three separate eras of success as manager of Manchester United. The first lifted spirits immediately after the war. The second produced a team regarded as the ultimate representation of his commitment to flair and creativity, the precocious group others christened the Busby Babes. And ten years after the Babes were devastated by the Munich plane disaster, Busby sent out another brilliant team to win the European Cup final of 1968. Busby himself was desperately injured at Munich, but lived to be 84. Jock Steen was the youngest of these three managers and took much longer than the others to make a major impression on professional football. Whereas Shankly and Busby were full-time players at an early age, Steen worked underground as a minor until he was 27. But once he became manager of Celtic, the club that lifted his playing career from obscurity to notable heights, Steen's intelligence, wiliness, and encyclopedic knowledge of football and footballers began to move him at prodigious speed towards the status of a legend. Bill Shankly was a warrior poet of football, a rough-hewn romantic whose often surreal imagery and talent for hyperbole have made his sayings central to the folklore of the game in Britain. His deeds were pretty remarkable, too. As a manager, he laid the foundations from which Liverpool have built themselves into the most successful English club of recent decades, and, in European terms, by far the most successful of any period. His powers of motivation had as much effect on the Liverpool supporters as on the team, and he remains a Merseyside icon 15 years after his death. Through long friendships with all of them, I found myself constantly trying to assess how that shared background, which happened to have quite a lot in common with my own, had influenced and enhanced their work in football. How did one tiny corner of a small country come to breed three men who had such a huge impact on the world's most popular team sport? They came from communities where daily experiences of everything from work to politics to sectarianism to football had an innate intensity. How did those early influences continue to shape their attitudes and philosophies long after they were recognized as three of the greatest managers football has known? In this trilogy of films, I don't expect to find definitive answers, but I hope to learn quite a lot on the journey of inquiry. Now, as I'm sure you have noticed by now, I am not particularly cogent even when I'm calm. So I think the uh, element of McIlvany's character I'm probably most jealous of is his verbose truculence when he's arguing. Gary mentioned it and his friend Danny Kelly granted us further insight into exactly that quality in episode 24 of this series. I dragged, I dragged Hugh into this to try and, because otherwise my picks would have all been obscure. And so I decided um, I'd better do some sports writing. I met Hugh McIlvany about 20 years ago um, because he died very recently. Um, because we, uh, I'm the judge uh, on the panel that judges the William Hill Sports Book of the Year. At that time, I was the, when the former sports minister, David Howell, died, um, I was the jet black-haired newcomer to the panel, and now I am a, 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 a podgy greyhead. Um, but and I met Hugh McElbany for the first time. I always loved his writing. Um, on football, absolutely brilliant, though he, won't, he wouldn't have liked me to hear me say this, no better than David Lacey, his rival in The Guardian, um, who once, when describing um, a Portuguese team taking Arsenal apart at Highbury, I was at the game, he said, the uh, opposition went through Arsenal's defence like mist through trees. 
And I thought, okay, now I understand the entire match in three words, like mist through trees. Um, Tony Adams was involved. And um, come on, Spurs. <laughs> and uh, Huey was a brilliant writer. He's writing on boxing. Um, it literally, uh, it's, not, it's not that he, wanted, he could make you feel like you were in the ring with the boxer. He didn't do that. What he made you see was that you were a spectator on the very edge of a human combat that's hard for us outside the ring to understand. Um, as I got to know him, I came to, to really, really, uh, part from the admiration, I really loved him because um, he was a person who brooked no fools except me. <laughs> to me. Um, we would argue about things like cat and dog. I would provoke him every now and then by saying something like, Johan Cruyff, the best footballer who ever lived, knowing that he would then start up about Pele. And he would, it was great being shouted at Huey because he shouted at you with the same erudition and vocabulary as if he was doing a public address. And so you were getting this amazing massage of language pouring over you. Um, but he could also listen. Um, I remember one night we'd finished doing the judging or something, some, we'd met up for some reason. He said, come on, let's go for a drink. Um, that was one of his favourite refrains. And we went to a tiny subterranean club, people will know it, in Old Soho called Jerry's. Jerry's was a private drinking booze that stayed open until it wanted to, stay, to close. And it was a great place, little dark booze. And we sat there and he said, I want you to talk to me. Let's explain something to Danny. He said, I, I am a great lover of art, poetry, writing. I don't understand rock music because I just don't get the appeal. You'll have to explain it to me. And... I said, seriously? He said, yes. And so we, we spoke to the proprietor. He took down whatever Kenny G they were playing, never standing his crest that. And I said, will you do me a favor? Will you put on Who's Next and put it on loud? And for the next 45 minutes, with this thing clanging through the club, to the amazement of the other drinkers, by the way, I sat there and I tried to explain to Hugh McIlvanny the visceral power of rock music. He didn't stop. He stopped me only once every sort of five minutes to ask me another question. He listened, he drank it all in. He also did tremendous damage to a bottle of Dom Perignon that he was uh, addressing. Um, and I don't think he believed one word of what I said, but he was enjoying the argument. <laughs> and right up to the very, very end, the last time I saw him as a well man, we were judging the William Hill sports, but we'd done the judging. And he and I had a ferocious argument about Scottish nationalism. And the SNP. I can't even remember. I can't even remember what I was saying because I was. I, I myself at this stage um, on the outside of several glasses of something uh, red and pleasant. Um, but again, the enjoyment of arguing with somebody who has a vocabulary to. I mean, I'm not short with a few words myself, but he was lashing me round the room with words. It was bloody brilliant, and I miss him terribly. Yeah, and the voice, and the voice as well is is a large part. Documentaries when he's doing, um, you know documentaries about footballers um he loved football he really really loved it he loved the, the the whole business of them the crowd gathering to watch these people manipulating a football um he absolutely and you could tell that in his voice um i remember as well uh going with him very late in the piece to he was uh, there was some lunch to honor pele who he adored and pele was too ill to come Huey wasn't in great form himself and he did two and a half, he did a speech, 15 minutes. The first two and a half minutes, in which a man of a, of a certain age deconstructed the role of nostalgia in sports journalism versus the tyranny of the now, where 
you know, player X. Aaron Wan-Bissaka is now the best right back who's ever lived because that's how it has to be. We have to report that fact. And Huey always tried to walk that line between nostalgic reverence um, and absolutely steel-hearted um, uh, scrutiny on the present. Um, there are great players, he would say, in the world. Messi, Ronaldo, etc. But don't tell me they're better than Pele and Croy because I know better. Mm. And he, he was... I loved that about him. He investigated things with a forensic ferocity that's just just, just not available to me. I have a broad brush. He had a rapier. <laughs> uh, let's uh, engage in some fantasy, Danny, because let's face it, it's better than the real world at the moment. Uh, tur- tur- turn the clock back and uh, you've been offered Hugh McIlvanning's services at either NME or a Total Sport. Uh, you're his editor and you've g- you're giving him a commission. What, w- what do you wish most that he would write about under your under your ages? Um, I think I think what you don't do is try to be too clever there. You don't try and send him off to do something you know he's going to hate. Yeah. Um, I think, you, I think you'd, you'd allow him, because I now I've got Hugh McIlvanny in a fantasy, and I'm also going to invent a time travel. Um, I'd, like to, I'd like him to go to something where something amazing happened that was very connected to sport, but had society in it as well. I guess, um, for sake of argument, when uh, Uruguay won the first post-World Cup in Brazil, the returning trophy, obviously Brazil were favourites, their Uruguay's big brother, in a way that makes the relationship between Ireland and England appear almost friendly because there's, there's just so many Brazilians, there are so few Uruguayans. I think I'm right saying they remain the smallest country ever to win the World Cup. When they took the trophy back across the River Plate to Montevideo, half the population of the country turned up to greet the trophy. And I think if you had McIlvanny on that dockside, describing the tournament, describing the final, but describing the arrival of the trophy and the Uruguayan president stood up and his speech consists of the following words. Other countries have their history. We have our football. Um, and I would love to, something like that where, the, where, you know, something amazing is happening one step away from the sport. I think he had the, the, the connection to the wider world of politics and culture to, to write something brilliant about that. Okay, I'll be honest with you. I need a little bit more of that voice. Uh, Danny mentioned there uh, about the address that Hugh gave to the Football Writers Association uh, in 2018 in honour of Pele. So let's listen to a couple of minutes of it. Nostalgia is rightly regarded as a constant threat in the accurate assessment of greatness in sporting performances and performers of the past, especially the rather distant past. A gulf of decades can impart a rosy glow to feats of long ago, making them seem more remarkable than they really were, particularly in the memories of those seeking to revive and revalidate the thrills of their own younger days. But some of us of fairly advanced age believe we can and do resist major distortions of perspective. And our determination to continue doing so is strengthened by recognition of another menace to the true judgment of former glories in sport, one just as damaging as nostalgia. That is the tendency among more youthful generations of watchers of football and many commentators on it to overworship the triumphs and triumphant figures of the here and now, to see them 
as raising the game to unprecedented standards of virtuosity. The trend is undoubtedly encouraged by the arrival on the scene of players as spellbindingly entertaining and productive as Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi, or Lionel if you trace his naming to Lionel Richie. <laughs> of course, it's a simple and reassuring fact that no modern developments in football have seriously undermined the lasting status in the game's lore of the man whose company we are so sadly denied tonight. As we send heartfelt wishes for Pelé's swift restoration to full vigor, the depth of our disappointment at his enforced absence testifies to the vast edifice of admiration still intact around a career that reached its prime half a century ago. And that's it for this special edition of Behind the Lines. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it as much as I have in putting it together. Um, quick reminder that the show is exclusive to members of the 42, so to gain access to it, along with a whole host of other podcasts and newsletters and stories, along with unique insights and special events, head on over to members.the42.ie. It's only a fiver a month, or better still, 42 euro a year. You can get in touch with this show here by emailing behindthelines.the42.ie or tweeting at gcuny93. Uh, I'm going to finish up here by quoting the opening paragraphs from a piece Hugh McIlvanny wrote about one Gary Lineker for The Observer in 1988. The ability to be truly outstanding at sport can transmute cramped and leaden lives into golden experiences of the wider world. But, as your favourite commentator on the box might say, this alchemy is a funny old game and all, and all too often the trick goes miserably wrong. Many who stake their futures on largely physical gifts know that they have lost long before the age of 30 and are left nursing a permanent sense of anticlimax. Even those whose commitment is justified by the scale of their talents may be haunted almost daily by the ephemerality of their brilliance, by the realisation that the prime of their celebrity and earning power cannot be expected to stretch more than two decades beyond puberty. Fading youth is everybody's problem, but for great athletes it is a kind of little death that turns some into nostalgic ghosts of what they were, forever loitering wistfully in the wings at arenas and events where they once held centre stage. Of course, there is a richness of fun and exhilaration in most sporting careers before the tone turns elegiac, and sometimes it never does. Being born with the capacity to be good at games is still a huge blessing, and not too many star performers look as if their thoughts have been scripted by A.E. Hausman. Some, it is true, give the impression that thinking, like masturbation, is something they avoid as a threat to their competitive age. But be assured that such athletes, those who make you feel that their next idea might be their first one, constitute a far tinier minority than a cynical public is inclined to assume. If a cosy, sedative banality is the lingua franca of the majority of sports interviews, that has more to do with the questioners than the questioned. Many figures in sport range from the Garcia eloquent, the young Muhammad Ali, to others who can only find true articulacy in action, like Lester Piggott. But most function naturally enough between these extremes, able, when invited, to complement interestingly with words the essential statements they make about themselves through their performances. For the sensibly inquisitive outsider, there is always the prospect of glimpsing the central peculiarity of the sportsman's or sportswoman's existence. The fact that a real life with its everyday pleasures and aggravations has to be lived around a metaphor for life, which is the best that sport can claim to be at the end of the day. 
Benny Leonard, who became the lightweight champion of the world 70 years ago and is rated one of the best pound-for-pound boxers in history, used to say that when he put in his long, regular shifts at the gym, he was simply going to work as other men went to the office or the factory. It was a nice line, but it wasn't true. In the gym, in the gym Leonard wasn't just working. He was practicing to be a hero, which isn't the common currency of the officer factory. Whether they like it or not, the top performers in sport cannot escape the certainty that they will be judged against heroic standards. Try as they might, they can never impose purely pragmatic values on their world. We all know that if sport isn't romantic, it is nothing. How can grown men justify taking bundles of money for playing boys' games unless they acknowledge that what they are engaged in is ultimately as elaborately contrived as theatre? The scarcely astonishing answer is that most are too profoundly absorbed by the dramas of a thigh strain or an incipient loss of form to be even remotely aware of the question. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.